delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangsta Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, Gangsta Rap. Let's go. Gangsta Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangsta Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with pastor, activist, and author Jamal Harrison Bryant. Bryant is the senior pastor of New Birth Missionary Baptist Church, a megachurch outside of Atlanta. He was selected to lead the church after the departure and eventual death of controversial leader Bishop Eddie Law. Bryant first came to prominence as pastor of Empowerment Temple in Baltimore, Maryland. He was mentored by many, including the Reverend Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. In their tradition, Bryant has been a fighter for civil rights, but his path on the church road was set long before that. His father is Bishop John Richard Bryant and his mother, the Reverend Cecilia Williams Bryant. They both are prominent in the AME Church, and it was there we started. We hear so much about PKs over the years, uh, but you got a double dose. You know, (laughs) often when we talk about PKs, we talk about somebody's daddy, but you got it from both ends. Yes, I am the epitome (laughs) of everything associated with a preacher's kid. (laughs) I I lived up to every narrative, every trope. Uh, I did it. Uh, You live uh, under uh, such a microscope and uh, a fish tank uh, that you just fight to fight for your identity uh, and fight to be a rebel without a cause. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I went to Morehouse, brother. I went crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to ask that because, you know, when you're a preacher's kid, um, there is this sense of having to take on what your parents or your parent has chosen very early on. You know, the expectation is far different. Um, Did it, in fact, uh, uh, you know, impact you in that way? 
Absolutely. There's a reason when uh, President Obama came into the White House uh, that his first statement to the press is that children are off limits, Mm -hmm. Uh, is that this is me and Michelle, uh, (laughs) but leave the girls out of it. The church didn't give us that level of grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, if we weren't singing in the choir, if we were, how come we ain't doing the solo? Uh, you know, if we usher in, how come my gloves not on? Uh, and so living under uh, that sense of accountability that is not ours uh, is unfair. As a consequence, and embarrassingly, 60% of grown preachers' kids don't go to church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I heard uh, something that has haunted me is that preachers' kids feel like the mistress. Uh, they get the time that's left over. Yeah, that (laughs) that the church is the favorite child. Yes, 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 yes. So living with that uh, is amazing. I uh, took uh, my daughter to FAMU for the early college program uh, last uh, two weeks ago, and uh, we were stopped um, walking by the campus. Hey, Pastor, will you pray for me, Pastor? Uh, Will uh, you going to be down here? Funnier story. I took uh, my daughter into Target. She getting last minute stuff. In the next aisle over, I'm hearing a mother scolding her daughter, saying, "Did you pack your Bible?" <laughs> so the daughter says, "No, I didn't pack my Bible." She says, "You see, Pastor Brian in here with his daughter. I know she packed her Bible." Mm-hmm. I looked at my daughter with a knowing glance, saying. You ain't packed no Bible, did you? She said, I sure didn't, but I got a Bible app on my phone. Does that count? I said, that counts. Uh, But already uh, just living in uh, that kind of space, it can be a lot. Often preachers kids do one of two things. They run to the pulpit or they run away from the pulpit. (laughs) Right. What was the magnet that ultimately drew you to it? Uh, When I finished uh, Morehouse, I went to Duke. Um, to be uh, a lawyer. Uh, Bernice King, four years before I got out of college, she had created a program at Emory for law and divinity. I get accepted into Duke. And I said, hey, did y'all hear what they did at Emory? Can we do that same program? I said, oh, sure. I always saw myself in ministry, but I my mentors was Reverend Jackson, mm-hmm. Reverend Shopton. So I knew I was a preacher, but didn't think I was going to be a pastor. Uh, mm-hmm. So I thought the street would be my sanctuary as it were. And I got into real estate law. You know how your eighth grade teacher tells you, you always going to need math. I didn't believe her. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I said, and there, I said, Lord, I hear the call. Mm-hmm. I went across campus withdrew out of the law school and uh, stayed in divinity school. But uh, I I knew I didn't want to pastor. I knew it. I mean, down to my gut. Uh, So when I got out of divinity school, I was national youth director at NAACP, which is where I first met you, Mm -hmm. under Faisi and Pume. I tell this story here. People never believe me. We're at our national convention in Charlotte. And and Pume, who is now congressman, uh, gets laryngitis. So he asked me to give the state of the Black America address. I'm 27 years old. I give the address. It was the greatest moment of my life. Next day, I'm on the front page of USA Today. Mm-hmm. I get off the stage, Ed, 
and waiting for me at the bottom of the steps is Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory grabs me by my collar. I'd never met Dick Gregory a day in my life. I only know him because my parents had records of his in our basement. Grabs me by my collar, throws me up against the wall, and says, Negro, that ain't the word he used. That ain't the word he used. <laughs> <laughs> he says to me, I'm startled. I'm thrown off. I'm going off in my speech trying to figure out what I said that was wrong. He said, Ed, when I was coming up, Black people, when they were in trouble, were called on two names, Jesus and the NAACP. Mm-hmm. He said, your generation doesn't call on either. That Gregory says to me, young man, you are out of order. You are supposed to be a pastor. Mm. I broke down crying. You know Dick Gregory as well. as I, Dick Gregory didn't go to church. Mm-hmm. He didn't leave in church. <laughs> he didn't have nothing positive to say about Black preachers. And seven months after that, Ed, is when I started my church in Baltimore. His was crazy. Dick Gregory came to my first Sunday mm. of the church that I started. I'm going to give the benediction. Dick Gregory walks into the pulpit, takes the microphone, <laughs> and says, This N word is supposed to be in this position. He says, For my whole career, I'll never forget. He said, 40 years I'm in the, on the stage. We always sold tickets. You had to buy tickets before you went in. In church, they let you pay on the way out. Dick Gregory, for my first Sunday, raised the offering <laughs> for my service. I tell people it wasn't my dad, it wasn't T.D. Jakes, it wasn't Bishop Charles Blake. It was Dick Gregory that called me into the pastorate. Uh, so hmm. my journey has been <laughs> has been a different one from the, from the door all the way in. Let me ask you this: you you. You touched on it throughout that, you know, it's interesting because I want to get into how you see um, today's church and how young people especially view it. But what's interesting is you are a very learned man, but as you and I both know, for years, particularly in the South, many of the preachers who held churches did not necessarily, certainly didn't go to college, certainly, you know, had not had the opportunities that you were afforded throughout your life. Um, There's a sense of how preachers were viewed, but we know all humans are flawed. When you went into the ministry, did you think about the idea of what that was going to be? I suspect you couldn't have known how large the intrusion, quite frankly, is until you did it. Yeah, I. Uh, you have to understand Mega churches are just a generation old. Uh, let, let me put it in context. Hip hop is older than mega churches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so I never saw myself in a new birth. Um, I saw myself doing well in an AME church somewhere, number one. Number two, while I went to Morehouse, I never saw myself pastoring in Georgia. Uh, I'm from Baltimore, so I saw myself Maryland and up. Uh, So maybe D.C., maybe New York, maybe Mm -hmm. Philly. Uh, And so I had no idea of what it is that I was walking into, and I assuredly didn't see myself in this place. Uh, You, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, interviewed and did a uh, story about Bishop Jakes. Uh, and when I lecture at seminaries, I tell them that when um, Dr. King went to Montgomery, he was the youngest pastor in that city. Uh, they threw on him the mantle of leading the Montgomery bus boycott. But here's an asterisk uh, that's important, is that he had already finished his doctorate degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all of the pastors Ed, in town say, well, we're going to call him Dr. King. I'm going to be doctor. Mm-hmm. So that's how Baptist preachers became doc. <laughs> Fast forward a generation. Bishop Jakes comes onto the main mainstream and everybody then becomes bishops uh, because he set the standard for that. Uh, when you were growing up, there wasn't no Baptist bishops. Uh, <laughs> we didn't know apostolics were regulated to storefront churches, uh, not on CBS News or BET or Time Magazine, for God's sake. Uh, so it set the, the trend for it. I'm saying to it that the education issue was one of two issues. Either they didn't have any or the preacher and the teacher were the only educated people in the community. Mm -hmm. It was one of those two variables that were at stake. Um, I am a third generation, not just preacher, but I'm a third generation seminarian, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. Uh, My grandfather went to Payne Seminary after going to Wilberforce, I'm going to say in 1940. Uh, And so that then uh, changed the trajectory of our family and higher education. Give me a sense of how you see uh, preaching today. Like everything, we all want to be, those of us who have had the spotlight and been deemed celebrity, or what social media has done, and it's made to a degree everyone a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, give me a sense of how you see uh, your vocation now and this sense of celebrity preacher, which, frankly, you would be deemed as one. Yeah, I think that um, I'm at a place of pause uh, because you're hearing modern day preaching is a lot of motivational speeches is a lot of the self-help section of Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. uh, not a whole lot of uh, scripture. And so in a lot of churches, they have replaced Bible study with midweek service. Uh, notice a small little nuance, I'm now 52, is that uh, my father, my grandfather had a study Uh, This generation has an office. Those are two different things. The Mm -hmm. office is where I'm doing business. The study is where I'm doing preparation. Uh, And so I think that uh, in large measure, where in the words of the Apostle Paul, we're having to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're not hearing the the likes of uh, Jeremiah Wright. Uh, that's calling America into accountability. Mm-hmm. You're not hearing, of course, uh, voices hither and yon, uh, but in large measure, where was the resounding outcry of the Black church of the Supreme Court gutting out affirmative action? Uh, where, where is it that uh, even for young preachers, 
uh, crying out about uh, where is affirmative the Supreme Court on canceling the cancellation of student debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's got to be a mobilization that has to happen. We're not uh, just looking to the likes of my mentor, Reverend Sharpton, uh, but the young lions, uh, as it were, uh, really need to roar. And I'm not hearing that really reverberate in the community as uh, we have in days gone by. How, how much of that would you place on the idea that, um, and again, I don't want to paint this brush for preachers only, but the the idea of building one's brand, the idea of building celebrity but has taken some of that space. Because I agree with you wholeheartedly that I think Black leadership, and I, this is my words, not yours, I think Black leadership has failed of late. I think the Black church has failed of late. I think the Black community has failed of late of looking at the things that undergirded us and kept us, you know, standing. And I think we don't see what we're going to have to pay for down the line until we figure out how to fix it. And it will not be a quick fix. Yeah, I I, I, I don't know if I give them a failing mark as much as I'm putting them in summer school. Uh, they're, they're in danger. Uh, I am enlivened when I see people like uh, Corey Bush out of uh, St. Mm-hmm. Louis who is coming. I am reinvigorated when I see Wes Moore out of Maryland uh, coming through. And so I'm hearing the footsteps of those who are coming. Of course, we can do more, uh, but I don't know if we're all together family. When you look at uh, uh, our dear sister in uh, Houston, who is uh, sounding the alarm, taking the mantle from uh, John Conyers about uh, reparations. reparations. Uh, So I don't know if it's failing, but I think that we got to play different. Uh, And we're playing checkers while they're playing chess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that we've got to move past symbolic victories and look for what is the substantive uh, movement. Uh, Many years ago, Roland Martin challenged the Congressional Black Caucus and said, what's the ask? (laughs) What, What are we asking to have happen? Uh, If uh, Biden gets another four years and black women have continuously saved the Democratic Party, uh, what are we asking? Uh, We don't got a Supreme Court seat now. We got a vice presidential seat now. But what is the legislative agenda? Uh, And I think that we've got to put our foot on the gas for it. Let me say this before I move on. I would say that I would continue to give them a failing grade. There is a difference between failing and failed. Mm. And I think that's the distinction I would make. I would not suggest to put these people out to pasture. I think that they, in fact, have, you know, their their best efforts and their best want for our community at heart. Uh, I do not see them as failed, but I do see them as failing. And I include and I and I include us in it in terms of the layman. We're all Yes. Uh, all right. Let me get off my soapbox. Um, <laughs> we talk. We talk politics there. Um, you at one point um, thought about running for Congress. You ultimately yes. suspended your campaign. Yes. Um, do you still have an inkling? Do you still get that calling? No, that phone number has changed. <laughs> <laughs> no, and uh, I got to new birth. This is, I don't have time to do anything else uh, at all. I uh, inherited $32 million worth of debt uh, and uh, almost 10,000 seats I got to fill. Uh, so my church is a congressional district by, by mm-hmm. itself. 
Uh, and so I really believe I'm in the place and in the space uh, where, I, where it is that I belong. We've got a whole lot of uh, Georgians who are really on the front line uh, doing it. I am proud to be under the leadership of Raphael Warnock. I am uh, proud to be under Mayor Andre Dickens. Uh, I'm grateful uh, that uh, Stacey Abrams left a blueprint uh, before going to Howard University of what it is that we need to do, that grassroots mobilization is still effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she did it by getting a hair's throw away from uh, the governor's mansion. Uh, And so I I feel that the leadership here in Georgia is, uh, is really leading well. Let me, let me try this. Um, I have talked to many a candidate that ultimately ran for the White House. The first time I asked them, their thought was, oh, no, I just want to be the best whatever position they were in at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. But everybody knew. Uh, beyond the busyness, my, my question is, is the burning still there, though? That's a different that's that's a different question. No, no, no. It, it is not because I, I am doing congressional work with a uh, with a congregation. We just uh, and we're getting ready to break ground on 150 mini homes uh, that I am only letting millennial couples move in uh, as a standard of going back to a model of a starter house. Mm-hmm. If your starter house ain't going to have a pool. It ain't going to have no in-laws, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but stay in here until you get your legs about you. In October, uh, Ed, we're opening up a holistic health clinic. Uh, we are looking at doing the first of its kind, senior housing for seniors who have custody of their grandchildren. Uh, and so I have the burden to transform a community, uh, but I'm seeing how I can do it uh, with this congregation. And and I would I would suggest that often it's easier to do it without the shackles that politics yeah. brings to you. Yes. Um, along that lines, you were a part of the profile that I did uh, on TD Jakes. Um, he has, I think, been the the best um, example of how to run a business, run a church. Uh, and keep them separate. The church is yeah. a business in and of itself, but the idea right. of two lanes, is that something that that you will continue to grow on? You mentioned the housing here, but how much do oh, no. you want to take that template? Oh, I'm taking it wholesale. Uh, he He's going to have to sue me for plagiarism. I got mm-hmm. the book and I'm tearing out every page of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think he is the, the 21st century quintessential Renaissance man. Anybody uh, from my generation forward who wants to be relevant in ministry uh, is going to have to cheat off his paper. Uh, (laughs) You're going to have to see it. I mean, because doing it and doing it so seemingly effortlessly uh, that at whatever stage that somebody is in ministry, uh, they're going to have to double drill. Mm. How much do you... um look at the state of the church again we've touched on this but the state of today's church what do you want to see differently what do you what do you think they're that, that the church the black church is not doing that they should be doing and what do you think they're doing and doing well number one the synagogues after the pandemic mm-hmm. did not rush to reopen the mosque did not rush to reopen. The Baha'i Temple 
did not rush to reopen. The church did. Uh, Jesus used the word go. The black church uses the word come. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Those are two different things. And I think that the church is going to have to really bolster up the teaching of the congregants of how do I have a personal life? How do I set up an altar at home? How do I commune with God when I can't get the pastor on the phone? And so we've got to move from membership to discipleship. That's number one. Number two, our church grew in the pandemic because during the pandemic, I gave one million boxes of groceries. People were pulling up to our church every Saturday, getting groceries. Food desert everywhere. Food shelters out of food everywhere. And we did it. And churches were, people were pulling up onto our campus saying, are you the pastor? I said, yes. I said, when y'all open, I'm coming back here. I'm an 80s baby. 80s church, you got to have a good choir. Rev got to be able to say it. Something for the kids on Saturday. And now this era is looking, what are you giving back? Not how would you, not how good is your service, how good is your serving? Uh, and I think that the churches are gonna have to come out of the same glass windows and go to straight, go to street corners. I think the church is doing well. The church. I want to put a different language on um, uh, the, the, the branding you gave it a failing. I want to say that the church, Ed, is in puberty. Our voice is changing. We got acne right now. Mm-hmm. In the words of my grandmother, we smell like outside. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we are in a place of uh, culture changes every four years. Church culture changes every 20. So the average church is 15 years behind. So most churches, Ed, that you're going to drive past or go through or visit, they pat themselves on the back because they're on Facebook. The kids don't left Facebook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the overwhelming majority of Black churches are not on TikTok. Uh, and so we, we got to figure out how do we become relevant and move in that direction. So I think that uh, what the pandemic did is it pushed the churches to embrace technology, to even know what AI is, Mm -hmm. uh, to make up pastors, I don't know, invest in a ring light. Uh, You talked about how now because of social media, anybody can be a celebrity or influencer. And 15 years ago, if you would have interviewed me and we talked about, quote, celebrity preachers, those preachers were preachers who were on TV. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody is a televangelist <laughs> because everybody is online. And so there's another generation who's not on TBN or not on the Word Network, not on Daystar, but they have figured out how to do reels. They have figured out how to go on thread. They have figured out how to take quotes from the sermon uh, and package it. Uh, And so I'm excited to see where the church is going uh, with millennials and Gen Xers and now Gen Zs who are coming to the fore, who are remodeling the church that I don't have to wear a robe to preach, but that I can preach in jeans. My grandmother would have 
had an asthma mm-hmm. attack mm-hmm. if she saw what I was preaching in. <laughs> what, what do you tell those who, who have not come up with the reverence that you and I grew up with for the minister, for the church, for the preacher, um, who, you know, see them as maybe we should have always seen them as, as very human, mm-hmm. very flawed. Um, the idea that, that, as I mentioned before, the personal life is out there. It's very humbling. Yes. You know, ministers didn't have to be as humble as they have to be today, years ago. Right. Um, you know, you have faced your own um, issues and situations, yeah. I suspect, personally humbling for you. Yes. What What did you learn from those things? And what do you tell people who may still look at not Jamal Bryant, but yeah. paint with the broad brush, all who stand in the pulpit um, yeah. as, as hypocritical? Yeah, I think it is humbling to know it is not me. Mm. Uh, you take no glory for yourself. Uh, Roman emperors, uh, when they ran through town on chariots to keep them humble, they would have somebody ride in the chariot with them. That while the crowd is screaming and yelling, they would whisper in their ear, you are mortal. You are human. Uh, And I think that pastors have to realize that while I operate in the sacred and in the supernatural, uh, that I am human. God has uh, saddled me that my successes are always the same size of my failure. I'm never able to get away. Uh, (laughs) Whatever it is, I got to own it uh, or else he's going to lease it wholesale. Uh, and so I think that it is a, a reverence for the office, but understanding the God of the office, mm-hmm. that my responsibility is not to win people to me, uh, but to point people back to God. And I think where people blunder and where they slip, where they fall is uh, they drink the they drink the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Or the words of Biggie Small, they high on their own supply mm-hmm. uh, to know, you know, that uh, it ain't Jamal who's building this church in Atlanta. Jamal got a GED. Jamal had a baby. Jamal had a divorce. So people got to look at me through the prism of my failures and say, Lord, God's still using him? Mm -hmm. He still got the nerve to speak on God's behalf? Uh, And I think uh, when it is that we move into that direction, it is not the greatness of the individual, but the awesomeness of the God we serve. Before I let you go, I want to uh, speak on one of your next projects, which you hope will be ultimately a huge one behind you as, as I have behind me, (laughs) some beautiful art. Uh, You and I had a a conversation when we were together just about art and the importance of it in, uh, you know, in history in our lives and what it could and should be to our community. Talk to me about what you want to do at, at the church and what you're, what you're putting, putting together. Thank you. I uh, woke up a a couple of months ago uh, with the epiphany that the modern Black church has replaced art with LED walls. There's no iconography. There is no images. There are no stories. And there are no stained glass windows. Uh, And so art has uh, been lost. Uh, I read somewhere, Ed, that liturgical dancers are the only place in the planet where there is no diet regimen, mm-hmm. where there is no health 
requirement. Uh, and I think that the art of dance, uh, spoken word, uh, my sister is a spoken word uh, poet, uh, is that we don't have spoken word artists in church anymore as they were in the 70s or mm-hmm. even in the early 80s. Uh, and so we're curating uh, in our church, our church in New Birth Cathedral in Stonecrest, Georgia, we're 25 minutes outside of Atlanta, uh, is the largest Black uh, land-owning church in America. And I sit with a sanctuary and a gymnasium. And I'm transforming that space. As a lot of mega churches are going to need to do in this post-pandemic reality uh, into a art gallery, which uh, we are hoping will be the largest Black art gallery in America, second to the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're bringing diasporic artists together. Uh, where We're not just going to show art but we're going to encourage the community that every Black family uh, should own uh, a piece of uh, Black art uh, in their home. And so we're hoping in the next uh, 90 days to uh, open it uh, and set the standard, not just for established artists, but for emerging artists, that you come to church not just to worship, but to understand our culture at a greater depth. And and in a real sense, it will act as um, uh, a, a gallery slash museum. To a great yes. Offering, yes. Right? yes. 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 Have the historic pieces. I know you've been over in Africa. Yes. Uh, looking uh, at at art there and talking with the artists. Yeah. No, it's exciting. So, uh, what was typical, the bookstore. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that churches have, uh, will now be a place where people can get prints, uh, as well as uh, they'll be able to scan the code uh, in our gallery, and we'll be able to buy it uh, directly. Uh, from the artists, as well as we will have a section ad for young artists. Uh, I am uh, so proud Clark Atlanta University uh, is uh, the only uh, HBCU where you can major in art. And it's right here in Atlanta. So we're going to use their students as interns and uh, we're going to house some of their pieces as well as showcase uh, artists uh, who are notable uh, who will uh, have residency uh, there uh, on our property. Well, great. We'll look forward to that, man. I am an art lover, as you know, and we'll yes. certainly look forward to the curation of, uh, you know, all the talent that's out here. We're, and, we're and bringing you, you back. I need you. Being an outlet. Well, I told you, I'm I'm there. Uh, one other thing before we leave, you told me something the other day that I, I didn't even know, that I actually conducted your first national yes. interview you know, yes. you're so eloquent and, you know, you're an OG now, but this is when you were a young buck. Let me let me help you. <laughs> this is going to prove it to you because this advice you gave to me my first interview, BET, you taught me how to sit on my vents <laughs> so that my jacket would not rise up. <laughs> so my jacket wouldn't rise up and buckle uh, over on my shoulder. Yeah. You gave <laughs> years ago, uh, and I still hold on to it. So thank you for giving me my uh, first uh, opportunity. I was uh, doing a project with the NAACP called uh, Stop the Love, Stop the, Stop the Violence, Stop the Love. Mm-hmm. So you brought me in because I, along with Russell Simmons, was doing the mediation for the East Coast, West Coast rap rivalry. Right, right. Yeah, (laughs) that's how far back we go. Yeah, man. Hey, man, always good to see you. I appreciate your time, man. 
thank you for your mentorship. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, and thank you for always showing uh, that there is a higher bar and a greater standard of ebony excellence. I'm grateful yeah, for you. I appreciate it. Another big thanks to Pastor Bryant. If you're ever in the Atlanta area, go check out his Sunday service at New Birth Missionary Baptist Church. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.